Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Dear ones, we are so thankful that you've joined us today on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. My name is John Russin. I serve as the host, and I'm here with the busiest retired man I know. <laughs> uh, Pastor Frank, how are you doing, man? You sound like you're pretty hectic these days. It's uh, busy, but it keeps you out of trouble, John. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not a bad deal. <laughs> well, friends, if you've just joined us, you've caught Frank and me in an ongoing series. I guess it's been going on about 26 weeks or so, quite a while, uh, in which he and I are talking about certain words or phrases that we think are pivotal in scripture. Of course, not that all words in scripture aren't important, but there are some that have just struck us. And the one we've been talking about for the past several episodes has been an anthill kicker and it's attitude. And Frank, if I may, I want to spend just a moment reviewing where we've been the past few episodes because they form such a strong foundation on where I think the Holy Spirit's going to take us today. My friend, if you recall, we began with looking at Philippians chapter 2, where Paul tells us to have the same mind, the same love, be in one accord, don't be conceited, don't have selfish ambition, but count others more important than yourselves. Consider their interests, too. And so as I look back on this, Frank, the gist I got from this is that when Paul's talking about attitude, He's not telling us to become subservient and to become doormats to others. He's telling us to properly value ourselves. And that way, we're going to be able to place ourselves in proper perspective to others so we can value them more. So right off the bat, my friend, we see that attitude is rooted in humility and a right view of ourselves. Isn't that right? Yeah, John, it's very important. You know, a lot of people think humility is thinking low of yourself. And, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. It's thinking correctly about yourself. It's not thinking too high. It's not thinking too low. But understanding and recognizing who you are in Christ, all that he longs to be and do in and through you, which then transforms everything you do into significance because you are the John expression of Jesus to the world. And I'm the Frank expression of Jesus to the world. And so it's an incredible strength, but a strength under control. And John, you know, I guess what I would say, the thing that controls our strength is love. And that's what I think we've seen thus far is the love that manifests itself in 
laying down your life to serve others, which is where Paul ended up in Philippians 2, had that same mindset as Christ. Oh, that's right. You know, when I think about Jesus and I think about your comments that you just made about valuing yourself correctly, our Savior knew who he was. Mm. There was no question in his mind who he was, what he was sent to do. But he chose to humble himself, lift everyone up higher than he was, uh, esteemed them greater, served them even to the point of death. And so, Frank, as I look at this attitude in Jesus, this is not one of those what would Jesus do things where we duplicate him, where we mimic his behavior. Mm -hmm. But no, we have his mind, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2. And so we are to allow his mind to be expressed in us. And my friend, it's, it's really kind of staggering that we can walk through life in the same way, living the same way as if Jesus were living right there with us. Wow. It's amazing. In fact, it is his life. And, you know, several weeks ago, John, you and I were talking about a kaleidoscope. And kaleidoscope, when you look at it, is nothing. It's just a very inexpensive tube with a bunch of pieces of glass. <laughs> very insignificant. But when the light shines through those individual pieces of glass, oh, my goodness. And that's how it is with us. In and of ourselves, we don't bring all that much to the table other than uniqueness. You know, there's there's nobody like us in terms of the same body, the same personality. But it's the light. It's the life that is shining through us that transforms who we are and everything we do. It takes on greater significance because it is his life being expressed through us just like it was 2,000 years ago. That's phenomenal. It is. And, you know, Paul encourages us to express that life in Galatians 6. We talked about this as well a couple of weeks ago. When we focus on restoration, how do we approach people who are trapped in sin? They've made a foolish choice, but the root cause is that they believed something that was wrong about themselves and their God. And so they acted on that wrong understanding. And of course, we looked at Genesis chapter three, Frank, and what happened after Adam and Eve ate the fruit? Not what God did or said, but we talked about how he did it, his act of tenderness and compassion. And my friend, I've been thinking about that passage for the past week or so, asking the spirit to show me the words, the English words that would more correctly, more clearly describe just exactly our loving father approached these broken kids of his. And these are the words that came out. Delicate, sensitive, elegant, exquisite. I guess we can wrap it all up and say graceful. This mm. is how the God of the universe who knows everything, who made everything, approaches to foolish children who made a stupid choice, and he wants to take step one to restore them. Frank, this attitude is just life-changing uh, when I think about how we are to exhibit that very same attitude, because Christ lives in us, so of course we can John, as I was listening to you, the thought that came to my mind 
was the parable of the lost sheep. Something happened. And obviously, it's the sheep's fault. <laughs> the sheep always hear his voice. But somehow, some way, that little sheep didn't fix his eyes on his shepherd, didn't listen to the voice of his shepherd, and got lost. And it's such an incredible parable. The shepherd goes into the wilderness. He goes where the sheep is to find him. You know, I remember a friend of mine said, as a believer, if you backslide, Jesus is backsliding with you. He's going to go wherever you go. And I love the beauty of the parable in that he picks this lost sheep up and carries it on his shoulders back to the flock. And John, I think that's a synopsis of the character of God that you've been talking about, who he is to us, even when we fall. Oh, yeah. And Frank, this attitude is going to be so important as we dive into today's topic. Because now that this foundation is done, I want us to jump into a topic that really is very practical for practically all of us who understand Christ as life, who are beginning to understand the grace of God. And this issue is this. What do we do? What does our attitude look like when we can't find a church that teaches Christ as life? Or mm. we're going to a church for years and Father begins to open our eyes to the truth of the new covenant and we start hearing things we've never heard before. Like mm. suddenly I realize that my pastor is calling me sinners more than he's calling me saints. Or maybe I'm starting to hear this odd mix of law and performance blended in with grace. And you're starting to hear and see things as Father opens your eyes that you've never seen before. So mm. what do you do? Where do you mm. go, Frank? You and I have had so many conversations with people around the country who face this very same issue, who can't find a home church in which they're comfortable. Boy, am I overstating this or am I getting this right? No, unfortunately, John, the church doesn't teach the new covenant. As we know, most churches mix the old and the new. So they will tell you, you don't have to do anything to become saved, and then instantly you've got to do a lot of things to stay saved. You're a no good, filthy wretch, but just come as you are, and then you're still a filthy, no good wretch. <laughs> and so it's it's sad, John. I went to one of the very best seminaries in the country, but I didn't understand the necessity to keep the new covenant in its purity. If you mix them, you destroy them both. Grace and law are two separate entities with two separate purposes. The law is used to kill and condemn us and drive us to Jesus. But once we're driven to Jesus, we live under grace, which has a tremendous freeing power to it. When we add law to grace, grace loses its freeing power. When we add grace to law, the law loses its condemning power and we destroy them both. Yes. And this, sadly, is what's happening. And when a believer does find the new covenant, they realize they are saints, 
you and I went through this, Sharon. There's a sense of anger, like I was lied to. And then it birthed in me an arrogance because I wasn't going to let anybody put me in bondage again, you know? And then I began these sarcastic put-downs of those other people and calling them legalists and religionists. And it's just weird, John, because, you know, I was one of them. (laughs) It was only by revelation that I ceased to be one of them. And yet I was holding them to a standard that, that really wasn't fair. I brought to the table what I had in those days, just like they're bringing what they have to the table. And, and for us to become arrogant and sarcastic, and, and it's, you know, 30 years later, John, you and I can say, boy, we were boneheads. Yes. Um, <laughs> but th- there is a verse, John, that just hammers me constantly. And it's in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, where Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you've received, then why are you boasting as if you didn't receive it? Grace should never make us arrogant, John. It should never make us sarcastic. It should make us people of understanding, uh, people of compassion, But, you know, I think the flesh gets in there and we're so proud of what we know that we lose sight of who we know. Oh, boy. You know, I'm sitting here in my chair, my friend, and I'm bleeding (laughs) (laughs) because, boy, I don't know how many times I have been uh, encouraged to leave churches, Mm. been told, I don't think you'll be happy here Mm. or been subtly or not so subtly squeezed out. Because I had that very same attitude problem. I knew it all. And you know, my friend, you and I both know lots of people around the country who have just given up on attending a local assembly. Mm. And they say things like, I just can't worship there anymore. Mm. You and I have been there. We know what it feels like. So what we're going to be talking about is really not just pointing our fingers at other believers we know who struggle, but pointing them at ourselves as well, because we have made the very same mistakes. That's Mm -hmm. why we're going to talk about Jesus, because Jesus, even though the church might seem like it's irrelevant and off target, Jesus is never off target. He is always relevant. And so no matter where we go, what we do, with whom we meet, Jesus and he alone must always be our focus. Not what we know, how well we can outline law versus grace and read all the verses, and it doesn't really matter. We just need to focus on Jesus Christ. And uh, Frank, you and I have, (laughs) well, I failed more than you because you started a church and you taught the truth as you knew it from the pulpit for decades. As I bounced around the country, I've been to all kinds of churches, most of which had their issues when it comes to law and grace. You know, John, I was recently in Florida ministering to a group of people, and I asked them, I said, how many of you have been told by your pastor that you have desperately deceitful and wicked hearts? And they quote Jeremiah 17, 9. 
and all the hands went up. Oh, yeah. And I said, okay, how many of you have been taught by your pastor that you are now living in the new covenant by faith and you don't have a desperately wicked and deceitful heart anymore because God took it away and gave you a new heart, Ezekiel 36. And a few hands went up. And what I did with those people is I said, today I want you to reject that lie that your heart is desperately wicked and deceitful and receive the truth that your heart is brand new, God-given and good. But we're not going to cause division in the church. We're not going to go to our pastor and tell him, boy, are you a liar? <laughs> boy, do you not understand the Bible? I said, we're going to stand in the truth very defiantly on the inside against any lie that would ever try to, to put me back under a guilt and a shame like that. But we're going to stand very humbly because we only know it's a lie by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to live compassionately towards those who haven't yet received the truth. So defiant against lies, humble because we know it was revelation and compassionate because we just got revelation. Others haven't received it yet and they need to receive it. And they're never going to receive it from us if we're coming across as this haughty, arrogant Pharisee of grace. Oh, gosh. You got that right, my friend. And so I guess the $10,000 question, Frank, is where is Jesus in all these churches that are confused? Maybe mm -hmm. they're liberal churches. Maybe they're legalistic churches. Maybe it's one that is confused, mixing law and grace. They teach a false identity. They focus on behavior and not Jesus. They deal only with social issues and not the gospel. Where is Jesus? Well, I asked Jesus where he is, and this is what he told me. He says, guess where I am, son? Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, in Matthew 18. And then I started looking at that, and he says, you got to see that it's they're gathering in my name. It doesn't say they got it all right. Because frankly, you and I don't know everything either. My no. friend. You know, although sometimes we like to think we did. But <laughs> they're gathered in my name. It doesn't say they got it all right. This is, hey, they're gathered around me. So I'm there. And then he told me this. He said, I'm there revealing myself in ways that they can understand. Like looking for a crack, looking for an opportunity to express my love and acceptance. And then he gave me two verses. I will never leave you or forsake you, even mm -hmm. if you believe the most foolish things possible. And then Romans 8, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God. He mm -hmm. will never turn his back on you, just like we saw, Frank, with the exquisite tenderness of our father with Adam and Eve, how he delicately allured them and drew them carefully out from behind the trees, that's what our father told me he's doing mm. in these churches. And so I said, sir, you're all right. I, I have been a goofball. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been so busy saying what's wrong with these people that I fail to see that these are your people and you're going to deal with them as only you know how to deal with them. Wow. Yeah, John, maybe I could add a third. 
And this is a, a very important one to learn as well, that he says, I will build my church. Ooh, yeah. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You and I, we don't build the church. That's not our job. He's done a masterful job of building his church long before we ever got here. I think he's going to do a masterful job of building his church long after we're gone. And we need to recognize that. I think that will take the aura of over-importance, <laughs> seeing ourselves as more important than we really are in terms of being used to open the eyes of the church to the truth. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't have to fix them. Our job is simply to proclaim the truth and love them. And, you know, I think maybe we've got that out of balance. I think we're doing a good job of proclaiming it. But I'm, I wonder if we're doing a good job of loving those people in their spiritual blindness. Yeah, I think you're right, my friend. And so my father took me on a journey to Luke chapter 4. And how did my older brother Jesus handle this? So you remember the story, Frank, Luke chapter oh, yeah. 4. He comes out of the wilderness dealing with the enemy. And he hits the scene with the bang. Luke 4, 14, reports went about him throughout all the surrounding country and everybody glorified him. So he hit the scene with a bang with his teaching. And then something changes when you get to verse 16, when he comes home to Nazareth. <laughs> so he stands mm -hmm. up in the synagogue, opens the scroll, reads Isaiah 61. And you wrote a devotional on this recently yes, in our I recent did. devotional on his job description, which is really cool. So I direct our listeners, if you <laughs> haven't picked up that devotional, man, it's that day's entry is worth the price right there. But I asked a more deep question, my friend. I said, why did he go to the synagogue? He didn't go to get taught <laughs> like everybody else. No, he went there to give only to give, to share what he knew so that those who needed to hear would be changed. That's why he went to the synagogue. And a few verses later, he goes to the synagogue in Capernaum after they throw him out of Nazareth. Mm. And so, but that was his motive, Frank. He went to the places where the people were who needed to hear, regardless of the reaction. Some accepted, some rejected but he spoke the truth and left the results with his father. Wow. Is that a lesson for us or what? Yeah. John, while you're sharing that, I had some verses pop in my head. One is John 7, I think it's 38 and 39, where they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when they lived in tents in the desert. Right. And they needed water. And, you know, Moses struck the rock and water comes out and all of that. And the imagery, the symbolism is amazing. We live in a wilderness. We live in a desert. There is a rock. His name is Jesus. He was struck and out came living water. And Jesus said, if you thirst, and he didn't qualify. He said, any thirst, anyone with any thirst come to me. And the implication was he'd satisfy the thirst, but he didn't stop there. And this is the thing that really grabs my attention 
He said that out of you, rivers of living water will flow according to scriptures. That was the key thought. And, you know, John, I've been studying the Bible for over 40 years, and there is no direct quote that living waters will flow out of us in the Old Testament, which I find hilarious and encouraging. Jesus paraphrased. I think that's wonderful, <laughs> you know, because you and I, we try to think of a verse and we go, you know, over in Ezekiel, it says something like this, and we feel guilty about it. Well, Jesus did it. He didn't quote it exactly. I think that's wonderful that he did that. But the passage I think he's referring to is Ezekiel. And there he has a vision of the temple where the Holy of Holies is. Water flows off the Holy of Holies altar, heads east into the Arabian desert. And wherever that living water goes, plants, trees sprout up. And the water flows into the Dead Sea and brings life to it. And John, that's the picture. We are the Holy of Holies. Not only does he satisfy our thirsts, but since our thirsts are satisfied, we don't have to go to anybody to get our needs met anymore. We don't go to church to get our needs met. We go to church as the ones whose thirsts have been satisfied, and now rivers of living water can flow out to others. John, we go to church to bring life to others, not to get life from them. That is huge. Yes, it is. And uh, that's exactly what our older brother Jesus did. Well, my friend, we are out of time. And we have just begun to scratch the surface of this single example of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. So I want to come back to this next time. But any last words before we wrap it up? Maybe this thought, John, Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, when he was considering this idea that we bring life to people or death to people, you know, based on whether they accept us or reject us and our message, he said, who is sufficient for this? And that's kind of the, the marvel, the awe, the wonder that all of us should have. None of us is sufficient, worthy to be able to do what we're doing, which is bringing life to people. Just causes you to pause and stand in awe of who God is and what he wants to do in your life. It's amazing. Yes, it is. Well, friends, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. If Father has reached out and touched you in any way, uh, we encourage you to check out our website. You'll find us at OurResoluteHope.com. There you'll see lots of articles, devotionals, eBooks, newsletters, books, etc., all centered around the incredible truth of Jesus Christ as our life. Check out also our social media platforms. You'll find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and an always growing YouTube channel. So like and subscribe and ring that bell so that you won't miss any new installments. And as always, Frank and I close with this very same reminder from Hebrews chapter 6, that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. It's a living hope. It's a blessed hope. Frank and I call it a resolute, a stable, a bedrock hope. And that hope is Jesus. So today and always, choose hope choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. 
and you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.